Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. This is a special Share Encore production you can give at MyFaithRadio.com. Thank you. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It is Wednesday, and we do the Sunburnt series, which we're going to continue to do. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I uh, will be looking at a new topic every Wednesday throughout the summer until the uh, the summer ends. Peter is with me right now. Peter, welcome. Thank you, Bill. This is not one of our usual topics. I'm excited for today. This should be quite interesting. This will be different. This will be different. Yes. Generally. We do not like having people on the show who are cooler than us. Yeah. So we've made a <laughs> fatal flaw it, it, I know. mistake and today. And surprisingly, it happens quite often, right? I, agree. I mean, I just, unfortunately, that, that would rule out a lot of the population if yeah. we kept those people out. We're going to talk about uh, something, the magic of the ordinary. There is a, a man, Arthur um, Guinness, who has got an incredible story. And our guest today, Stephen Mansfield, has written a book on it, uh, The Search for God and Guinness. And it is going to be a really fascinating hour. This is a man of great faith. G.K. Chesterton said, The most extraordinary thing in the world is an ordinary man and an ordinary woman and their ordinary children. I love that Isn't quote. That I mean, we so often put people on pedestals, we right? Do. That, and And I understand that we can respect people and be grateful for people, but to somehow put people above other people, I think, is where we start running into some pretty big problems. So this is an exciting hour. Yeah. Our guest, uh, Stephen Mansfield, is a New York Times bestselling author, and he's written a number of books. And again, the one we're going to chat about today is The Search for um, God and Guinness. And it's going to be a fascinating story because, Peter, you and I have both spent plenty of time in Ireland. We have. And that is the birthplace of this story. It is. And I mean, the, it, people that have been to Ireland, that is one of the landmarks to go to. And, and you think about it in terms of like a pub or a brewery or something. But I think the behind the scenes story of what these people have done in terms of ordinary people making such a dramatic impact in the world is something that that Stephen has has brought to play. And it's really an interesting story. Yeah, he is on our studio line. Stephen Mansfield, welcome. Hey, it's great to be with you. We did a little pressure. I'm a little pressured here about having to raise the cool factor. <laughs> oh, I, I don't think you have anything to worry about, Stephen. I think, okay. like, we're so low on that totem pole. No, no worries here. Yeah. So. All, right, all right. All right. Just ease up on me now. Yeah. <laughs> you have so many exceptionally cool stories. Every story you've told is outstanding. And I think this is going to be an amazing one to hear about, about uh, the simple faith of a man who used his wealth to make a big difference in the world. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty amazing story. I mean, I, I like the the title of the book sort of picks a fight in the sense that it's a merging of God and beer, which folks are happy about. <laughs> but it but it's really not it's really not my fight. It's Arthur Guinness's fight. And uh and I think he, he did something amazing in Christian history, Irish history, beer history. So it's a great story. Thanks for bringing me on. Yeah. And Stephen, if you go to and tour the Guinness factory, or you're not gonna hear this side of the story, are you? Well, you're not. I mean, they're good people there. But Guinness is now owned by Diageo, a secular Italian alcohol firm. And, you know, for reasons we can probably figure out, they're not interested in the religious side of this right. thing because, you know, normally religion is anti-bars, anti-booze, anti. Um, and, you know, in some cases, legitimately so. So if you're a secular Italian firm, you're thinking, 
let's keep religion as far away from this as possible. But for those of us who are people of faith, this is a pretty powerful tale of how wealth was used to impact a nation for the glory of God. And also, of course, I, I love the idea of, like you said, just common people using their common skills to the glory of God and making a difference. So it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. So, uh, Stephen, let's let's dig into this. Uh, we we want to hear about Arthur, and we want to hear uh, before there was even a Guinness, what went what, what went on. Well, it's interesting. Arthur was born uh, on on a, the estate of an archbishop. His father was the manager of that state. One of the things they did was they brewed beer. Now, let me just take let me just dive into it just for a second to say that at this point, people who could brew brew beer. Uh, were like the Red Cross. They were like folks who were making a difference in society. And the reason is that in the 1600s, there had been a thing called the gin craze. Parliament had outlawed gin, the making, uh, the importation of gin and whiskey. So people in the country started making it themselves. All throughout the British Isles, they started brewing beer themselves. And it just, I mean, alcoholism raged. People were giving it. The poor were giving it to their children to make them go to sleep. <laughs> one in every one in every six houses in London was a gin shop. I mean, it was terrible. And we have a great quote from a bishop who said that gin made the English people what they never were before, cruel and inhuman. Hmm. So, so those who made beer. And by the way, that's if you if you're around bars or you walk by bars or you see the signs in an airport, often you see beer companies symbolized by nuns or, or monks or some. And the reason is that those who were trying to make a difference at this time were often Christian people trying to brew beer because they knew it was better for folks. They didn't know the science, but they knew it was better for folks because they weren't getting as drunk and they were actually getting healthy. We now know it's because of the B, the B vitamins, but people didn't know that at the time. All this to say that Arthur Guinness launched out into the world as a brewer of beer. He was esteemed. He was good at it. And, uh, he did some things that were just stunning, uh, even before he had kind of a religious change that caused him to use his wealth for the glory of God. So I'll stop ranting on here and let your questions lead me. But yeah, Guinness Guinness did something pretty amazing, and at a time when brewers of beer were seen as heroes. Yeah, Stephen, I'd love to follow up on that a bit, because it sounds like he was deeply influenced by the theology of John Wesley, who was a famous Protestant reformer that talked to, in, in his sort of social theology about how to use your money, that he had a, a famous statement that was, make all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. And, and it sure sounds like the Guinness family was moved by that sort of idea. Yeah, there's no question about it. Arthur Guinness actually went out, uh, began to brew beer, bought a brewery land in Dublin and began to really prosper. He became part of the aristocracy, became part of the upper class. And he was bored. He was bored. I'm making money. What am I meant to do with it? I have a sense of God. He was a Christian in the kind of a, the sense that you're a member of a church. But when Wesley came, Wesley not only called him to conversion, but, but, but gave him a vision for what he would do with his wealth. And it was with that statement you've already read, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can to the glory of God. Well, Right off the bat, uh, Arthur Guinness began to began to make a difference. He began to use use his wealth for the glory of God. Uh, he started paying higher salaries in his company. He started defending Roman Catholic rights. He was a Protestant. Um, he chastised his own social class for its wild, expensive excesses. He started a, a hospital for the poor. Served as its governor. He worked to abolish dueling, if you can believe it. And also became the founder of the Sunday School movement in Ireland, whereas Robert Rakes was the founder in England. Uh, Arthur Guinness was the founder in Ireland. So pretty amazing reform that began to happen. And 
I'll, I'll, that would have been the end of the story, except that Guinness, the company, goes on in the 1800s to achieve astonishing wealth, and all that wealth is in the hands of people who have been influenced by Wesley's vision. So it's a pretty, pretty amazing thing that starts to happen right there at the dawn of the 1800s. I'd love to have you follow up on that, too, is that I think there probably are some listeners that are experiencing a bit of a disconnect that he made his wealth uh, through a product like beer like that. Is there uh, how would you sort of address that situation in terms of people that are making money in in the secular environment, even with something like beer? Is is that ethically sound? I mean, how, how did maybe the Guinness family process this idea? Sure, I completely get it. Well, you know, I certainly understand people who don't drink because, you know, they've got alcoholism in their family or they that they believe uh, maybe biblically that it's not legitimate. But uh, beer was not ever seen as anything. Alcohol was not ever seen as anything inherently evil or negative throughout the history of the church. In fact, a funny little side story during times of plague, um, the Roman Catholic Church actually baptized infants in beer. And that sounds weird, except that. They just knew that beer uh, didn't have the, the didn't didn't make pe- people sick is the bottom line. They didn't know why, but the little bit of alcohol killed germs, and so during times of plague, the Roman Catholic Church actually baptized children in in uh, beer. So all this to say that by the time Arthur Guinness comes along, um, beer is actually seen as part of healing society. People would drink. Beer, it had a whole lot less alcohol. It had B vitamins, we learned later in history. People were healthier for it. Um, and so the, the Guinnesses never had any ethical issues about brewing beer. They just wanted to use their craft to the glory of God. And I think that's important. You know, you can make guns, you can make knives, you can make concrete, you can make bread. Um, you can, whatever, whatever you do, the scripture tells us, whatever you do, do with all your heart and to the glory of God. And that, I think, is the, how the Guinnesses would have approached it. They had an interesting comment, Stephen, about if you want to, uh, I think he said, you cannot make money from people unless you are willing for people to make money from you. And he did go on to talk about the way in which he treated his employees. And I did find that description in your book absolutely fascinating. Uh, Two fully qualified doctors who staffed uh, an on-site clinic where any employee, wife, or child could receive treatment. They had dentists available. Uh, the retirees received pensions at the pleasure of the board without having to make contributions of their own, and that extended to widows. Um, if an employee or an employee's family member died, the company paid the funeral expenses. What they did for people that worked for them, it goes on and on and on. Oh, it's it's just stunning. I mean, let me just set it up for you real quickly. Please. Uh, if you had worked for Guinness in 1928, okay, this is not exactly an enlightened year for employer-employee relations, right? This is the year before the Great Depression. But if you had worked for Guinness in 1928, you would have had full on-site medical care. Like you said, you would have had dental care. You would have had massage services. They would have had me right there, baby. Um, <laughs> you would have had educational benefits, 20% higher salaries. They even had, every year for anyone who was single, uh, they, they paid for a, a trip to the countryside so you could get out of the city. And they had a dating service in the country, company so that if you were single, they made sure that you had a date for this trip into the country. Um, sports facilities, reading rooms, libraries, and, of course, two pints of Guinness every day free for every worker. I mean, this is 1928. It's stunning. But the reason was 
that Guinness, when he began to get the Wesleyan vision for caring for the poor and the needy and using his craft for the glory of God, he said, where I need to start is in my company. I mean, a lot of people at that time would run a company at almost a slave labor kind of level and then maybe give their money to the church or a social cause or, or something that would be visible, like a statue or something. But Guinness said, no, if I'm going to care for these people, I need to start with my company. I need to raise levels there. And so it, was, it became tradition in the late 1800s, 1900s, that mothers said to their daughters, be sure and marry a Guinness man, because the, because the, the benefits were so great. It was, it was pretty stunning. And um, again, nothing speaks to me as loudly as the idea that in 1928, Guinness was looking like what we now talk about with Apple or you know, Google or some of the big companies that have stunning benefits for their employees. Mm-hmm. We'll take a little break. Stephen Mansfield is our guest on the Sunburned series. We're so glad he's with us today. He's written a book called The Search for God and Guinness, a biography of the beer that changed the world. Arthur Guinness was an amazing man of faith, used his wealth to serve others. We'll be right back. This is a special Share Encore production. You can give at MyFaithRadio.com. Thank you. Welcome back to the Sunburned series. We're talking to Stephen Mansfield today, and you can go to StephenMansfield.tv, and that's Stephen with a P-H-S-T-E-P-H-E-N, mansfield.tv. We're talking about his book, The Search for God in Guinness, a biography of the beer that changed the world. And I look at some of these people in the Guinness family, Stephen, and in the 1890s, uh, Rupert Guinness, who was the future head of the brewery, uh, received five million pounds from his father on his wedding day. That's a lot of of money in 1890. (laughs) Shortly after, he moved into a house in in the slums and launched a series of programs that serve the poor. Well, and, and I think this confirms that they weren't just window dressing, you know, they weren't just putting a little money aside there and then saying, you know, going in on television and saying, Hey, we, uh, we're taking care of the poor here. This is a guy who takes his new bride and lives in a tenement, uh, to, to raise attention, by the way, 5 million pounds. in that day is, is well into the hundred million dollars wow. today. So imagine you get married, your father gives you $100 million, and you say, great, I'll park it at a bank, but my wife and I are going to live in the slums. And then we're going to do that because we're some of the most prominent people in the country, and we're going to draw attention, uh, the whole nation's attention to what's going on. So this is the kind of people they were. And um, I, I have to say, when I see, and I don't see them in the States, but when I see and when I travel overseas, used to anyway, it's coming back, but when at post-COVID we travel overseas, I see the Guinness commercials the TV commercials, and they still have those great values. They're still talking about the handicapped, the poor, the needy, caring for one another, a tradition of service. And I think this is all where it arises, this personal commitment amongst the Guinnesses to make a difference in this generation or their generation. Stephen, there's such a huge income gap between them and the people that they're living with and serving. And, and 
Uh, could you speak a bit to just the idea of sort of maybe the common humanity in which we find ourselves? I mean, I, I don't know that they were any more or less blessed than anyone else. It sounds like they almost saw, they, they saw themselves as stewards as opposed to owners of some kind, and they, and they saw a common humanity in the midst of it all. Yeah, it, it was a common humanity without window dressing, without trying to be something they weren't. I mean, the fact is they were aristocracy. Uh, it would have been weird had they tried to walk the factory floor or get mm. themselves invited, you know, to the truck driver's house for dinner. I mean, they weren't trying to do that kind of thing. Um, But what they did was they invested themselves in finding out what do these people need. And so because of the potato famine that had happened in Ireland, Dublin was just jammed with people and with the poor. And so uh, the, the, the Guinness board hired a medical doctor and said, find out what we can do. What's the best way for us to make a difference? Well, that's how, why they began sending nurses to everybody's house to, show them how to cook better, how to have sanitary conditions, et cetera. And the doctor came back and said, look, we can do nursing and medical care forever. Until you start rebuilding houses, we're not really going to make a difference. So the Guinnesses tore down entire neighborhoods and rebuilt housing for the poor on a massive scale and also started a trust called the Ivy's Trust because their aristocratic name was they were the Lord's Ivy. And that trust in some years in Ireland's history has given more to the poor than the Irish national health, the Irish welfare system, because they just saved up so much money and handled it so well and gave it to the poor. So what I'm saying is they weren't trying to be the common man. They were lords. They were riding around in carriages. They were billionaires. They were they were Gates on stun, Warren Buffett on stun in their generation. But they cared, and so they did the research and got teams invested and figured out how they could make a difference amongst the poor. And they did. They changed poverty in Ireland in their generation Mm. because of these values. Stephen Henry Guinness, who is the grandson of the founder, Arthur, uh, his Christian impact, uh, he's he's ranked right up there with Dwight L. Moody and Charles Spurgeon. Oh, yeah. There's a bunch of branches of the Guinnesses, some of the banking Guinnesses, some of the brewing Guinnesses. But the but the missionary or preaching Guinnesses are stunning. You may have heard the name Oz Guinness, a pretty well-known Christian writer today. He's an ex- a descendant of the Guinnesses. Um, they were married into the Hudson Taylor family, famous missionary family. Um, pretty, pretty amazing. So a lot of the Guinness money went through their their heirs and on into missions in China uh, missions throughout the world. I mean, they, they to put it bluntly, they put hundreds of millions of dollars into, into the gospel around the world. And it's because they were not only Christians themselves, but some of the family members knew where the money should go, intermarried with some of the great missionary families in church history, and became, of course, worthy causes for investment, as, as the Guinness organization knew. It sounds like they were committed to both sharing the gospel in terms of the words and the story, but also being active in the community as as manifesting the gospel in those places. It seems like it was kind of a sweet spot of the both and. It, it really was. And, and, you know, you need to understand, too, that they would not have made a big distinction between people who were doing missions work in China and people who were doing their craft to the glory of God at the factory in Guinness. I mean, I mean, I know certainly there's there's an importance to preaching the gospel that's not the same as brewing beer. I understand that, but at the same time, you know, pe- probably people listening to this program are public school teachers. They are uh, people working in an office. They're people who are driving vehicles. They're people who are maybe policemen and firemen, movie stars. They, mm-hmm. 
You would not believe who listened to my show. <laughs> I, I, I completely believe you. I yeah. completely, but, but even though you're messing around, I mean, you know, the fact is movie stars, whatever your craft is, whatever your calling is, whatever your gift is, you're meant to do it to the glory of God. And I, and I say this with all love for the church. Thank God not everybody's called to preach. Very small group of people are called to preach and pastor and, you know, be evangelists. Um, the rest of us are called to be out here in the world using our craft, running restaurants, you know, being policemen, teaching people, cleaning streets, doing whatever we're supposed to be doing to the glory of God. And so whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your heart is the message. The Guinnesses would talk about this. They would say, look, we're going to fund the gospel, but we believe what we're doing on the factory floor is as much an offering to God as anywhere else. In fact, at one board meeting, they talked about the factory floor being an altar to God. And so that idea of the common work uh, being something holy, it was very special to them. And I, I think it's something we need to bring back and, and not just see Sunday morning as the holy time in church, but see what we're doing all throughout the week as an offering unto God. Mm-hmm. Stephen, let's. Um, I would love for you to start talking about uh, more of the way the Guinness family uh, used their wealth. I know that's a chapter in your book, and that that's fascinating to me. Well, it, it, it's it's pretty stunning. For example, I mean, I could just go on and on. They they cared a lot about their factory workers, and they wanted to prevent corporate uh, accidents, what we might now might call corporate accidents, you know, injuries on the job. So they, be, so they hired a medical officer to begin to figure out practices to help limit injuries on the job. And what do you do when a guy gets cut? What do you do when a guy breaks an arm? And this was so innovative and so new um, that it eventually became known as the St. John's Ambulance and went national. It's basically the Irish version of the Red Cross. Oh, wow. So here's here's an example. Yeah, St. John's Ambulance, that's kind of an unusual phrase for us Americans, but for an Irishman, that's the Red Cross in their country. And where did it start? On the Guinness factory floor. Then here's something that'll be kind of close to our our hearts. Uh, During World War I, when many of the Guinness male workers went off to war, the Guinness company promised every man who went to war that he would have his job when he came back. Now, imagine what that would mean in our generation. Second of all, he paid their, the Guinness paid their, the Guinness company paid their family half wages. So the mom at home would get half wages, even though her husband was off at war and Guinness hired the women. So long before Rosie the Riveter, the American image in World War II, you know, women in the factory during World War II, Guinness was hiring women to run the factory while the men were off at World War One, and he was paying their families half salary in addition to what the uh, the families were earning of the man's salary. So, I'm sorry, in addition to what the women were, were earning on the floor. So, stunning care for veterans, stunning care for military families. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, my father was a colonel in the Army, and I'm very sensitive to these stories that are coming out now about how military families are having to file for you know, health care and, you know, government aid and they're not getting enough and communities are having to, you know, put together food packages for them because they're not being paid enough. And uh, Guinness took care of that just almost by Mm. themselves, made sure that all of them were taken care of and had their job when they came home. Just really, really amazing testimony. Fascinating. Yeah, Yeah, Stephen, let's take a short break. We're up against a break here, but we'll be right back with Stephen Mansfield, his book, The Search for God and Guinness. We'll be right back.
One thing I love about autumn is that it becomes fall. Wait, yeah, yeah, that's it, the fall fundraiser. That's happening September 13th through the 16th. Your financial support makes this podcast so very possible. Make a gift today at MyFaithRadio.com or texting the word GIVE to 877-933-2484. Thank you again. This is a special Share Encore production. You can give at MyFaithRadio.com. Thank you. We're back. We're so glad, uh, Peter Kapsner and I, to be hosting uh, the Sunburnt series. And we're talking to Stephen Mansfield today. Uh, We love when ordinary people do extraordinary things. And this is the story of Arthur Guinness and the Guinness family. And Stephen's written a book called uh, God and Guinness, a biography of the beer that changed the world. I find this fascinating. And Stephen, just kind of to reset the show, because I know people are just getting in their car and going, they're talking about beer on a Christian station. Uh, (laughs) No, I mean, no doubt there's been probably pushback for people that say, why would you write a book about uh, a a man whose business would have led people into uh, pain and sin and alcoholism? Well, you know, it's, it's a great question. I wrote this book in 2008 when we had the economic downturn. And whatever the many causes of that economic downturn were, some of them were corporate greed. I mean, I mean you don't have to be a leftist to believe that some of it, some of what caused that was some corporate greed. I mean, that's been admitted. So I began to think, how can I speak to our generation from history, which is my field, um, about a more noble use of wealth, about a more noble way to run a company? And I remembered the Guinness story. And you know, they didn't have the qualms that we have about beer and alcohol. In fact, as I said in the first half hour, uh, beer was actually helping to heal their society from what they called the gin craze, where alcoholism was rampant and it had made, as one bishop said, the British people inhuman and cruel. Um, but beer, because it had relatively little alcohol and it also had B vitamins that nobody really knew about at the time, people got healthier. People were less drunk. Homes were more vibrant. There was more art going on, et cetera. So at that time, they would have seen what Guinness was doing as helping to heal society. It's a different perspective than we have today. And, of course, I need to say the Guinnesses were, you know, four square against drunkenness. They stood against drunkenness. They stood against, you know, any kind of excess. But uh, Guinness, the Guinness uh, dark stout, as they call it, if you know anything about beer, they brewed, they brewed a dark beer, um, was so nutritious because of the way it was brewed um, that it was given to pregnant women on the Irish national health system. Uh, the medical doctors in Ireland would would prescribe um, a glass, you know, pint of Guinness a day because it had such great vitamins and so on. So the Guinness is never thought in terms of beer being evil, and that's why I had a little fun with the title, "The Search for God in Guinness." People are like, "What? What? What?" You <laughs> and uh, I like bringing up that whole story. Stephen, in terms of this, their their generosity of heart, uh, it doesn't sound like this was something forced upon them. They just had the money. They were they were making the money, and and it's it's really a model uh, of a difference between maybe being forced or obligated or or pushed on to redistribute things versus the idea of what does it mean that God begins to work in your life, and so you become from the inside out a generous person. Yeah, it's exactly right. I mean, the way I like to think of it is suppose Steve Jobs who gave the world so much technologically, 
had lived, let's say, another 30 years and become a very strong Christian, become deeply committed to the poor. So he's giving to the world this great technology. He's continuing to grow Apple and what have you. Um, but he's taking his billions and, and helping the company turn its you know hundreds of billions towards caring for the poor, serving social causes, et cetera. That's what was happening in the 1800s. Um, at 1886, the Guinness Brewery was the largest brewery in the world. The Guinnesses were amongst the wealthiest family in the world. And as you saw, you yourself cited the fact that one of their heirs got five million pounds, over $100 million um, for his wedding. And what did he do the next day? He went and lived in the slums. Why? To draw attention to the plight of the poor. That's mm. the kind of people they were. So if Warren Buffett became a believer tomorrow, and I'm not saying he's not, I'm just saying, but the kind of believer with a with a real passionate social conscience, I'm going to spend my wealth for the glory of God, the healing of society, or some of the other wealthy, wealthy people, um, you know, that's, that's the size of story we're talking about just 150 years ago. And I'm guessing you don't necessarily need to be wealthy to have this sort of open-handed spirit. I mean, clearly they made an impact, a gigantic impact in the city of Dublin, but, uh, but people can band together in, in communities and do something similar within their community, I would think. Well, that's the, that's the beauty of this story, I think. You know, Arthur Guinness, he, sure, he became a wealthy man, um, but he was just a normal guy, you know? Uh, in fact, once people were messing with his water rights and he grabbed an axe and threatened them, and he, you know, <laughs> I, I kind of like the human side of the story. You know, he wasn't a saint. He didn't float six inches above the ground. He didn't glow, you know? He had a temper. He was a brewer of beer, you know? Uh, but yes, absolutely, he was just a common guy whom God used. And that's the beauty of it. I love the stories that we read about, in, in, sometimes in the newspaper, of just the average guy, the high school coach, the public school teacher, uh, the guy with a little burger uh, restaurant, you know, that kind of thing. And he decides, he or she decides, use their wealth to the glory of God, use their knowledge to the glory of God, uh, start making a difference in people's lives, pay it forward, whatever phrases you want to use. And a huge difference happens, difference happens in people's lives. And that's the message of Guinness. Mm-hmm. Stephen, I'd love for you to say more about the Arthur Guinness founding the first Sunday schools in Ireland. Well, it's interesting. You know, uh, Sunday schools are relatively new inventions. They they didn't you know that they, they didn't happen in the Middle Ages. They didn't happen uh, in the Reformation. Uh, and then much later, they began to really catch on. The idea that you'd have a program in addition to church meetings on a, on a given Sunday, uh, maybe an hour or half an hour. We know of this very well now. Uh, especially if we're from certain kinds of churches where where Sunday schools are emphasized. But uh, it was relatively unknown. So a man named Robert Rakes had helped give birth to Sunday schools in England, as I've said. But Arthur Guinness recognized the need when he heard Wesley, and Wesley taught discipleship, Wesley taught reading your Bible, Wesley taught gathering with other believers to study Scripture, Uh, Wesley taught the idea that you should be accountable to other believers and how you walk out righteousness and holiness and have others asking you questions and spurring you on, um, then then he bought the idea of Sunday schools. And so he began to sell that, so to speak. I don't mean literally, but but talk about that, uh, present it to the Protestant churches in Ireland. Um, I'm sure he funded some material and paid some bills. And before long, Protestant churches in Ireland had dynamic Sunday school programs. And of course, that, that was all brought uh, to the U.S. And now, you know, it's hard to find a Baptist church or Methodist church or other denominations that don't have a Sunday school on Sunday morning. And all of that was part of the doing of Arthur Guinness and Robert Rakes. 
Yeah, I think about raising our kids in, in these places, too. I, if you were to say to your own kids, these are some of the things that we could learn in Sunday school from this story, you know, if they're there on a Sunday morning, what, what would be some of the things that you would teach them? Because, again, they seemed terribly theologically astute, having been really um, affected and impacted by John Wesley, and yet they were common people. I mean, th- this really seems to be a template for our kids to, to be part of both the secular world and, and the sacred world. No, there's no question. I think the for, I think the beginning principle is everybody has a calling, and for most of us, it's not to preach, it's not to church work. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, obviously, we're thrilled for the church, we're thrilled for the places where the gospel's preached and disciples are made. Um, but most of us are called to what you might call more common things. They're not secular things. Uh, they're just things that are out in the world. Thank God you have believers out there in businesses, out there on the streets, out there in schools, out there in media. And so the idea that God has called us all to different things and that we're meant to use those things to the glory of God. Um, and so, so I, I like God's almost joke of using Arthur Guinness, who's brewing beer. It's like he took the most <laughs> secular thing, you know, in some people's minds. They didn't think that way at that time. So let's take, you know, I mean, God wouldn't use something immoral. He wouldn't use like porn or something. But I mean, Guinness, he uses beer, which a lot of people, again, think is, you know, that's weird. But all that Arthur Guinness is doing is using his craft, his calling to the glory of God. And then Wesley comes along, gives him a vision for it. And frankly, Guinness's wealth increased. I mean, the more generous you are, Scripture says it, you know, the generous man prospers. So he was already prosperous. Now he begins to give his funds away to the poor and help the needy and start hospitals. His company prospers even more. He becomes even more wealthy. He gets more away. So that's the first principle is that we all have a calling, we all have crafts, we use them to the glory of God, we use them for His purposes, and God can use anything. He can use the, the, whatever, the lowliest job you can imagine, somebody doing it for the glory of God, God can use. The, the second message would be one we've already, already referred to, and that is the generous man prospers. Now, we've some folks have turned this into a weird prosperity gospel in our generation, but it's just normal Scripture that if you give, uh, you know, it's, it's basically Genesis. You're blessed to be a blessing. So use your wealth for the glory of God. Tithe, give money, serve people, care for the poor. And, you know, Corinthians, Paul to the Corinthians says, this is, this is God's going to give you then more seed that you can then plant and you can give. And he'll give you then more so you can give even more. It's not about your personal prosperity, though he certainly wants you taken care of. But it's more about what you can give and the difference you can make in the world. And then... Uh, I, I think that on a larger scale, I love the fact that the Guinness Company studies and strategizes how to help the poor and the needy. Uh, they don't just accept the answers that are there. They don't just work through the organizations that are already there, as wonderful as they might be. Um, but they they actually, because they had a lot of money, they could hire experts. How can we help? How can we make a difference? What are the best strategies? Today, we would say, what are the best practices? How can we make a difference? And they did stunning things. By the way, I just want to throw in real quickly that this this was paralleled by the fact that they they were innovators in technology. Um, the Guinnesses built miniature trains that went through tunnels underneath the ground. They built steam trucks. They 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 did all they did all kinds of things. Created new kinds of barrels. They created invented new kinds of ships. Um, they were innovators because they were constantly trying to lo- use science. To both to enhance their product and to serve people in the world. In fact, one of the funniest little things I know about Guinness um, is that it, that they had a thing called a widget they put inside bottles of beer 
to keep it fresh and to and to not put nitrogen in it, which is what kept it alive and fresh. And in 2003, the British people voted it the greatest invention in 40 years. Now, I find that hilarious because <laughs> not not space travel, not cell phones, no, no, no. <laughs> a widget that goes in beer. That says a lot about my British friends. But all that to say, the Guinnesses were great innovators, and they were, they did that. Why? Because they believed that scripture that says the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to search it out. So they researched, they studied, they worked hard to find out what they could do to make a difference in this world. So those would be a few of the Sunday school level sort of principles I think the Guinnesses teach us. Wow, that's so interesting. It's such an amazing application of this principle of how should we live. And the Guinness did an amazing example. And I know they were a great inspiration, I'm sure, for many business people but they've done it on such a grand scale and have stood out among so many others. You think of who might be trying to duplicate this model today, and is anyone coming close, Stephen? Well, I, I certainly know people like this. For example, uh, some of my friends, among my friends, are the Green family who own Hobby Lobby. I'm sure everybody's heard of them. Mm-hmm. Um, they're pretty well known. I just happen to have a relationship with them. Well, I mean, I say this with all respect for the Green family. Again, my friends— but Hobby Lobby is beads, for heaven's sakes. It's crafts. <laughs> it's, you know, somebody, I mean, even, the, even one of the Green family members said it's baubles. You know, it's, <laughs> it's shiny objects. They have turned this into billions of dollars. And yes, they use it for the spread of the gospel. They fund projects all over the world. In fact, I'm, as, I'm, as you're talking to me, I'm sitting in Washington, D.C., in the Museum of the Bible. What are the great new additions to our city, largely begun by green uh, money and Hobby Lobby money? So I would say the the greens of Hobby Lobby are very much doing what the Guinnesses did. That's so interesting. Take a short break. We'll be right back. The uh, Sunburnt series continues on this Wednesday. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are hosting uh, Stephen Mansfield. He's written a book called The Search for God and Guinness, a biography of the beer that changed the world. We'll be right back. This is a special Share Encore production. You can give at MyFaithRadio.com. Thank you. Okay, Peter, this is a little different, but awfully fun conversation we're having with Stephen Mansfield. This is. It's terribly intriguing just to hear sort of the insider story of what is obviously a worldwide brand, right? And I had no idea going into this, until this interview, the impact that they've made. Well, let's stop our snappy banter and get back to Stephen. I think that's probably a really good idea, (laughs) Bill. Do you have a question for him, or do you want me to generate one? (laughs) Just thinking a little bit, Stephen, in terms of the impact that they had on future generations, right? Like when we see our lives as not just about success and bottom line and and did we make it through that quarter or through that month through that year whatever that looks like it it sounds like they really thought in terms of the generational impact and sometimes when we're doing the common things that we're doing we we don't really see that possibility well you're absolutely right and i think that you know the guinness is thought in terms of generations constantly in fact you know one of the things i'd like to take you through just very very quickly are the five guinness pillars at the back of my book i've got five pillars the guinness is built on that they intended for future generations. 
and that that I think you know anyone listening can can build on. I'm going to do it very very quickly, and then I'll let you guys kind of click on whichever one you want to talk about. But their first pillar was discern the ways of uh, of God for life and business. We were talking about that just a moment ago. What does God want to do with your company, with your business, with your now we call it a side hustle. What does God want to do with you? What does God want to do with you guys as radio broadcasters? What does he want to do with people in the front office? What, what, how do you discern the ways of God for life and business? Really, really critical. Uh, number two is exactly what you were just talking about. Think in terms of generations yet to come. Uh, we now know that American businesses think in terms of a few years in advance. Japanese businesses think in terms of a century in advance. The Guinnesses, the board, we see, we can read in their board minutes that sometimes they were thinking about 200 years down the road. Wow. That's one of the reasons wow. they prosper. Uh, number three, very quickly, whatever else you do, do at least one thing very well. The Guinnesses sometimes messed up. They got into real estate. They got into trains. They got into some other things. They finally said, look, what we're meant to do is brew beer. Let's not stray into everything else. So whatever else you do, whatever kind of renaissance person you are, when it comes to business, for sure, do one thing very, very well. And then the Guinnesses were known for master the facts before you act. Uh, they, the famous phrase was they considered long and act quickly. In other words, they took time to consider what they were going to do. But it's this final one that you referenced earlier, uh, invest in those you would have invest in you. And it's, it's, it's the famous Guinness principle. You cannot make money from people unless you're willing for people to make money from you. Mm. So they thought of themselves as investing in others. They wanted to raise the water level for all brewers in Ireland, and they did. They said if we, if they, if we could help them prosper, then we'll prosper. It's the way they thought, an investment mentality, a rising tide lifts all boats kind of mentality. They wanted to bless everybody. They wanted their contractors to make money from them. They didn't just you know, run the tightest deal with everybody so they could squeeze money out of people. So these are the legacy principles that they built on. And, and um, you know, I've been talking, I wrote this book in 2008. So I've been talking about this book for, you know, what, 12, 14 years almost. And I'll tell you, there are a lot of businesses around the world now that are building on these principles and they are living out the Guinness principles and legacy and they're prospering as a result and allowed to give a great deal uh, to the cause of the needy and the poor. And it really is exciting to watch. I'm intrigued by that idea that they were willing to help some of their fellow, even potentially competitors, because they believed that in that it would be good for everybody. And it seems to speak of a bit of an abundance mentality, that there's more than enough for everybody versus sort of the scarcity mentality that I might fall into, where there's sort of this fear-based, tight-fisted gripping of things and, and not a willingness to, to open those hands. Well, you're absolutely right. And it, it basically comes to one of the principles of, of free market economics. And I'm not going to get on a soapbox here, but um, but but. Some people believe that the economic pie is just so big, it'll never get bigger. So we're all competing for a slice of a pie that's only a certain size. And that's this is a lot of where envy and resentment come from. A lot of socialism comes out of that mentality. Um, but the Guinnesses believe something different. They almost, they almost use this exact language, that an economy is something that grows. It's something you can increase the size of. So let's grow it so that everybody prospers. Let's increase so that everybody prospers. So the guy building our trucks, the guy delivering our whatever, our, our grain, the, whatever services they needed, they, they did good deals with them. They wanted those companies to grow. They wanted the broader economy to increase. They wanted families to be better off. They wanted industries to flourish. They wanted Ireland to rise. So their mentality was, let's grow the pie. Let's not just act like we're competing for the same little, you know, single, single last piece at the Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner, you know, but let's, let's grow the pie. 
And so th there, you're exactly right. Their mentality was abundance. Their mentality, to use modern language, was let's affect a win-win. Let's, let's let everybody prosper. And so we're going to, quote unquote, as, they, as my uh, Texas friends often say, let's leave some on the table. Let's do a deal that, that causes everybody to have some left over and so everybody's prospering. That's what the Guinnesses did. And it challenges our modern thinking where we're squeezing the last dime out of everybody in our business deals. But look what the Guinnesses did. Look at the magnificent legacy they left. Uh, Stephen, I, I just I have to think of the, the way in which the Guinnesses acted. They, they saw that there, there was a need for an alternative to, to bad water over the centuries that had made people sick. And they were fighting hard against alcoholism and drunkenness and this family's faith was incredibly um, pivotal in in the uh, start and the implementation of so many social programs and ways in which they literally made the country better yeah there's no question and one of the things I admire in this story is that they were willing to learn they were willing to grow I mean the fact is when John Wesley met Arthur Guinness Arthur Guinness was already a wealthy man fabulously wealthy man but he was he was malleable. He was teachable. And when Wesley said, now, here's what a man should do with his wealth and here's what we should be about. And here's the heart of Jesus for the poor. Well, Arthur Guinness was willing to grow, morph, change, uh, do business a different way, do business with different values, treat his workers differently. So one of the lessons we've got, we've all got to take away is how do we how do we change how do we morph you know the, the, the humorous way to say this is in christian circles and, and i've been involved in church leadership we used to say that the seven last words of the church was we've never done it that way before <laughs> and, and so you know if, if that's your mentality well we've never done it that way before why would we start now well you're going to kill the church so those are the seven final words of the church but if your mentality is let's innovate let's learn let's grow let's increase well, the Guinnesses did that. They, they, I mean, whatever it was, whether it was new kinds of commercials, you should just go on. People listening should go on YouTube and look up some Guinness commercials. Some, when, I, when I do my keynote talk uh, around the country, around the world on Guinness, I'll actually show some of the Guinness commercials. And there's not a dry eye in the room, and I'll sometimes see them and say, you're crying over a beer commercial. <laughs> but, but, but the fact is the beer commercials are so full of compassion and care for people and tradition that literally people tear up. It's very, very moving. But why? Because Guinness innovated when it came to PR, when it came to a widget in a bottle, when it came to ships, when it came to trains, whatever it was. And they did it because they wanted to serve God with their craft. Stephen, it sounds like they were not trying to manipulate people in those commercials. They were just showing and displaying their love. Hmm. That, that, well, that's that's the beauty, I think, of the Guinness message. There's a, there's a commercial I often show, and it's a bunch of guys in wheelchairs playing basketball. And you're kind of watching it, and there's a voiceover, and you're going, well, what's this about? And then suddenly they score the final basket, and everybody stands up on the basketball court but one. In other words, a, a bunch of guys, one guy was actually bound to a wheelchair, but his buddies all got in a wheelchair to play wheelchair basketball. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I just got to tell you, having shown this about 10,000 times, people <laughs> are in tears. They're just in tears. It's so moving. And is Guinness trying to sell beer? Sure. This is who we are. This is our brand. This is our beer. Come buy it. But they're also trying to send a higher message. And the beauty of the lesson of their company is you can do both. You can be about your product, 
You can say, we got a better product. Come try it. It's good. You're going to love it. But you can also say, and we're committed to something higher than just the beer, or we're committed to something higher than just the shoes or just the Oreos or, you know, whatever your business is. And that's the Guinness message. Yeah, Stephen, we just have a couple of minutes left. When you did all the research on the Guinness family, what, what were maybe one of the biggest surprises you you found? I'll tell you, the biggest surprise is the way that the legacy of the Guinnesses continues on the streets of Dublin today. Mm. Um, my my wife and our son, they, they went with me to do the research. We got in a taxi, and a taxi driver said, what are you doing here? And I, we explained, and we had a good conversation. I said, well, I'm writing a book on Guinness. And I mean, he lit. He got lit up. He said, well, I'm alive because of the Guinnesses. And he explained that his grandfather had had an artery cut on the Guinness floor. He was a Guinness worker that the Guinnesses had started this thing I've spoken about, the first aid practices that became the St. John's Ambulance. The local, the workers working with the grandfather knew what to do, knew how to stop the bleeding. Um, the grandfather survived, and therefore this taxi driver was alive. So he's tearfully telling me about what the Guinnesses meant to his family line. And we came into that uh, again and again and again. A waitress, a university professor, a politician, we kept running into people for whom the Guinnesses had changed their lives, changed their destiny. And that, to me, uh, is one of the greatest things I've ever seen. That is such a cool story. Great story. Yeah. Stephen, thank you so much for doing the show today. It's just been a delight having you on. Guys, it's great to be with you. Thank you so, thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you so much. Stephen Mansfield has been our guest. His book is called The Search for God in Guinness, a biography of the beer that changed the world. I'm always inspired, Peter, by reading biographies of people who are doing incredible things. He was an ordinary man doing extraordinary things. Yeah, that was a story with which I was wholly unfamiliar. And so to yeah. have him break that down that way and, and to be in such, it's such a, again, a well-known brand of anything, right? But to hear the backstory of the people that really cared in authentic ways for others, it was really a stunning story. Yeah, I agree. That's our show for today. I'm so glad that you could spend time with me today. Dr. Peter Kapsner hosting the Sunburnt series with me, and our guest was Stephen Mansfield. Have a great night, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.